Welcome, everybody. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Now, you're here because you're an entrepreneur and maybe you don't know how to get your business to the point where it provides you freedom. You may have a good product to sell, but maybe you don't know how to market it to where it gains a lot of traction. There's no mystery that your network is your net worth. And the more you can connect with people who are successful than you are, the better off you will be. You may want to connect with really high-level people but aren't really sure on how to provide value to them. Well, today we have Craig Hanley, who is an entrepreneur, an expert at marketing, author of the book, Hired to Quit, and a musician. Craig is the CEO of Listen Trust that has a valuation of $150 million. He's been able to connect with tons of successful entrepreneurs like Kevin Harrington, who was the original shark from Shark Tank, billionaire Richard Branson, and friends with the CEOs of the biggest business masterminds in the world, including War Room, G <coughs> Network, and Maverick 1000. Craig also has over 3 billion plays of his music online. That's equivalent to having every single person in Africa, India, and the United States all play his music once. By the end of this interview, you will feel inspired by what you can do with your life. You have a better understanding of what it takes to grow your business and have fun while doing it, and you'll get a closer look to on what it takes to be successful. So, Craig, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us here today, man. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I um, have to make one correction in your intro. My business is worth $15 million, not $150 million. We do $150 million in sales every year for our clients. So... Just want to make sure I make that correction. It's still a big business with almost a thousand people, but uh, but you, you inflated it with a few zeros, but that's okay. All right, beautiful. Well, appreciate the correction and the and the honesty there. So, Craig, we see where you're at today. Um, I want to give a shout out to Patrick by David for this question here because let's say we're we're in tenth grade. You know, we're we're buddies, we're like 15, 14 years old, and we're friends. Would I bet on you to be the person you are today? No, no, not at all. <clears throat> I think it's it's when I'm, gosh, 14 and 15 is kind of when you start to get shaped into the person that you're going to be. And what's funny is I was a kid who was, I was 113 pounds um, and my dad was a cop. And so I actually was a target of a lot of bullying, you know, when I was in eighth grade, it wasn't just one kid. So it wasn't like, oh, fight back. It was like seven kids would wait for me after school, you know, to, to push in the snowbank and do the whitewash. And of course, in my mind, it was horrifying, but it probably wasn't too terrible, you know, if you look at it as a grown up. But, you know, when you have to walk home through seven to 15 kids that are all waiting to either watch you get beat up or participate, it's pretty nerve wracking. So I used to walk home, you know, down through the, I used to walk up this, this road in Wilton called Weld Road, and then I used to cut through the woods and I'd stay after school until the teachers would make me leave. And so in those times, you feel like, you know, nobody likes you, right? So then your personality starts to get shaped, and you want to be a man that people like. <clears throat> and so when I got into high school, you know, it was, I was, first of all, we moved to, my dad got, you know, his job moved, so we moved, which was great for me. It wasn't as great for my brothers and sisters because they were all doing pretty darn good. <clears throat> and, uh, when I moved, of course, I didn't know it, but apparently I was cute because a lot of the senior girls started asking me out on dates. So I learned, you know, women were great. You know, that was, I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse, but 
somebody liked me, right? So you start getting that that positive vibe and you start leaning into it. So, I, I, you know, of course, I had probably more. My mother used to say that I would be out on a date and there would be two girls waiting in the driveway for me to come home. So, um, but it also shapes you into somebody who needs to prove themselves, right? So every day I felt like I had to prove myself. So in high school, although my, my test grades were always Fs, I'm sorry, my test grades were A's, my homework was Fs. I didn't do any homework because I was too busy in drama club trying to get the lead in drama. I was too busy on chorus trips. I was too busy playing football, playing basketball. I was trying to do everything I could to prove that I was a worthy human being, you know? And so it shapes you into who you are. So I was maybe 13, you know, 14, 15, 13, 14, 15. I was timid. I was scared. You know, I hadn't yet turned into that person that was going to, you know, beat the crap out of the world. Yeah, that's very interesting because, you know, going into high school, that's when you started DJing and going into, you know, college, you you had a job in terms of being a DJ. Um, and then you started doing weddings and stuff like that. Well, was that, would you feel, say like that was towards like the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey? Did you kind of stumble yeah. into this? Well, I started weightlifting like crazy. First of all, I, I became a power lifter. I was benching over 500 pounds. And I mean, I was doing the, some of the strongman things where you lift the tires and the you know, and I was strong and nobody would, nobody would even look at me crossly as a guy with my size, you know? So most of my life right up and, you know, through till I was 40, probably I, I felt like my brain, you know, they call it neuroplasticity. I always felt like I was, um, I always felt like big was safe. You know what I mean? And so it was, just, you know, I conditioned my brain to think the bigger you are, the safer you are. And, uh, and so that was good. Um, but, um, but it was the beginning because I, well, I don't, when I was in college, it was the beginning of my mindset of having a hacker mindset, right? I used to umpire baseball games and I used to officiate soccer. And the reason I did that is a soccer game was one hour. And whenever you did a game at the time, it was $70 a game, baseball, $70 a game was an hour and a half. And, you know, you could work a $7 an hour job you know, which at the time was about what you get paid or you could find ways to hack the system. So I DJed on the weekends and I got a couple hundred bucks a night and then I started doing weddings and I was doing 500 bucks for a wedding. And then I raised it to 1500 and got even more money. And so I was definitely of that hacker mindset where I didn't believe you had to trade hours for dollars in the same way that a lot of people did. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you know, once one thing that's fascinating is you said that you went from charging like $500 to charging $1,500, but I believe in the book it said 25. And then you said you got booked out like, like crazy after that. What, what's the principle behind that? Why was it that $500 wasn't like you weren't getting booked, but 2,500 or 1,500, you were just like, I was the $500 cheap DJ option. I wasn't the best. I was the cheap option. And a lot of people that are trying to get their weddings done, they want the best, not the cheapest. And so I had to charge more in order to have a higher perceived value in the eyes of the bride who was making all these decisions. You know, she literally, and it was just sales 101, right? You look at her and you go, you know, maybe this is a little bit more than you wanted to spend, but it's probably not the top of the line. <clears throat> but you really want this wedding to be special. And in order to make it special, you want to hire somebody who's going to give you a memorable experience. And that's why I'm a little bit more than some of the low-end DJs, but I wanted to make sure I was affordable for people 
And so I, uh, I wanted to come into kind of this middle range for you, but I'm going to give you the $10,000 job for the $1,500. And I would just, it was an easy close, you know, cause everybody can come up with an extra thousand dollars for their wedding. Man, that that's fascinating. Well, that's the, the principle of, you know, value over price, right? Yeah. And you deliver that $10,000 experience for them. Now, moving into Listen Trust, what, what was the birth of that? How did that all come about? I started doing, when I was in college, I was doing, I, I always wanted to be in the music. I went in the army to get money for college. It was $750 a month, which didn't quite pay for Berkeley, um, which I got accepted to, Berkeley College of Music. Um, so I went to this local school, but really the more you study music outside of like a Berkeley, I'm sure there are a few others, but that music college was really teaching you how to be a music teacher. I mean, I spent semester after semester in sightseeing and ear training, trying to learn the difference between a dotted half note and a dotted quarter note and a, you know, and I'm like, there is no difference. It's like the difference is so minuscule that yeah, there are professional musicians who will notice, but I wanted to be a rock star and nobody in rock and roll is going to criticize you for having a dotted half note over a, over a quarter note. You know what I mean? It was just, it was just stupid stuff. And I'm like, I just, I just wasn't going to buy into it. There was my psyche was going to be never in tune with trying to understand the difference between, you know, it was like, there's no difference. I don't know. I mean, I learned it enough to get a C, but I just wasn't going to go there. So somebody said I was good at talking and said I should try sales. So I started doing door to door sales. Um, and learned all the techniques. A big guy like me, you know, you have to open the outer door, put your back against the door, all the subliminal things you do in a, in a face-to-face. So you you put your head down and wipe your feet, and people automatically would back away and let you in. It's crazy. If I wanted to be a, if I wanted to be a killer, I know how to do it with my body language. You know, it'd be you know all the subliminal things that you can do in a face-to-face meeting. Ask for a glass of water. Sure, come in. Sit down at the table so easy for me it was really easy and i was actually in the top 10 in the country like that and going door to door it's a big company it was combined insurance selling insurance door to door and i made all their awards consecutively like boom 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 and then i won their top award i think i won it eight times consecutively <clears throat> they had me speaking at their events but i was there for two and a half years and what i realized in two and a half years is i was close to 100 grand but i'd never cracked it and they pay you residual for five years. And I realized that I probably didn't want to work that hard, you know, forever. And I was never going to crack a hundred grand working my butt off. So I started looking for other options. And while I was looking, I ended up in a call center. And I'm in this call center taking inbound phone calls and I'm, I'm cracking a hundred grand, you know, I'm doing about 125,000 a year in this call center. And I'm not having to work all that hard because the calls are coming to me. And then I started putting my sales spin on it, you know, because I was so good on the phones, like I was door to door. I started rec- I t- taking the recordings of my, of my conversations and turning them into phone scripts and uh, started really studying the psychology of copy. And I became one of the top copywriters in the country for phone scripts in phone centers. Yeah. Different from digital copy, but not much. Right. Um, it's all the same things. And, and I apply the same things today to music. You know, I study, um, I, I do, um, I, I break down records that are successful. Look at why they're successful. Berkeley runs a college called Music Deconstructed. And of course, I, I befriended the two people that run the course and offered to 
do digital marketing for them to drive people to their course if they gave me the course for free. And so I've been studying all the ways that Taylor Swift is a genius, Ned Sharon and Adele, and just really breaking down these records. Well, I did the same thing with phone copy. And I realized that if you write scripts where if people are talking to somebody, it's different from copy. But if you run through the periods, take out punctuation and allow and, and teach people to breathe in the middle of a phone script, not in the middle of not at the end of a sentence, but in the middle of a sentence, then you control the call. If I use uptones and downtones, I put little arrows in the script for an uptone or a downtone. Downtones close conversations. Uptones um, leave conversations open and allow for a consumer to reply with their own questions. And so I started putting little arrows in my scripts and I use first and third person in the same sentence, which is terrible grammar. Like I, these scripts would go to the lawyers and the lawyers would redline the crap out of them and have punctuation. I'm like, no, you're missing the point. The point is that we're selling, we're not writing grammar, you know? And uh, I started getting these phone scripts out and showing great improvement. And then I started to train on my script, which showed an even greater improvement. And I became a trainer, manager, and I just got all around the country. I would go into call centers and fix things. And at one point I'm like, you know, I know this better than anybody. I should open my own center. And so I stuck 20 seats in Hermosillo, Mexico, and we, for some reason, I had a client who really wanted to run some Spanish, but didn't know where a good call center was. And I don't speak Spanish, but I was like, well, why not? I'll put it in Mexico where 70% of the U.S. Hispanics uh, have a Mexican dialect. And I had this philosophy in writing scripts that, and this is a great philosophy. W. Clement Stone used to say, little hinges swing big doors. And so I would try to get 5% increase in conversion on dialect because when i was on the phones talking in north dakota eh, i would have my you know oh yeah oh sure yeah you betcha you know mirroring is, is a five percent increase um adding first and third person in the same sentence was a two and a half to three percent increase running through the sentences two and a half three percent increase little hinges swing big doors and so i would always look for the two percent i didn't want ten percent i wanted a lot of doubles you know, I did find a few home runs. Um, I got close to $300,000 by going into six call centers, charging them 50000 apiece to fix their FAQs. FAQs in a call center are written with an uptone at the end. So if somebody interrupts you, what's in this product? Most people go, it's got this, this, and this. Okay, with an uptone. And I did some digital, um, some some analysis in my head, and I learned that, um, I learned that, 30% of people who call into a phone center and end up in an FAQ actually hang up the call after okay. And 30% of those people call back in and order. And so I realized FAQs were broken. And so I literally, all I did went into FAQs and I wrote, so did you want to go ahead and buy it? You need some more information. So I either got them to buy or drove them back into the script tree and eliminated hangups. And I got paid a boatload of money for that. And I just, that was one that worked. And so I just went from call center to call center to call center to call center and cleaned up over a few months. That's the money I used to start my own center. You know, and then I was like, well, I wrote the copy for our center, had it translated into Spanish, and we started crushing it, you know. And uh, we went in under, in under like a year and a half, we went from zero to 15 million in billing to 150 million in sales to from 20 employees to, at one point, we had 1,400 employees. 
Um, it was before we learned how to become more efficient. You know, <laughs> so we were able to get rid of about 600 of them by working on our routing, working on our, you know, routing through skill sets, which improved our performance, which helped us grow. So it was kind of a process. But so there's the that's a long answer to how I ended up building a big call center. But, um, you know. Th- that is fascinating. I am blown away by the level of detail that you put in the scripts and how these little things like add little percentages and would completely lead to a completely different outcome. So were you learning about this or you just kind of just, did you just look at your process and listen to what you were doing? Like, how did you learn? Like, Oh, if I do this and that, like, do you have a mentor in that? A lot of it was W Clement stone. There's a book called the success system that never fails. It's a great book. I always recommend it. All my employees read it when they get it. Um, I started studying Augmandino. I started studying Zig Ziglar. Um, I started looking at the things that they do that work psychologically. Um, Persuasion, Robert Cialdini, you know, Persuasion, Persuasion, his two books. I just started studying some of the masters and really learning about the psychology of a sale. I did, ironically, take some psychology classes in college at one point because I was bored and I was a little bit interested in Freud and Darwin and some of the other guys. So, I'm sure that added to the fact that, you know, there's things you can say or do. And, and of course, Neil Strauss is someone I've met. I've been friends with him. Um, and Neil wrote the book, The Pickup Artist, you know, and, uh, and and it's just, I was always a natural on one hand, but on the other hand, I was studious. And so I would also take my recordings. I'd listen to my recordings. I'd take the things that I said and I'd write them into sentences I worked them and then I started taking some of the stuff Zig did and some of the other salespeople and I'd write my own scripts using the Socratic method of getting a yes, um, using feel felt found, using similar situation closes. And so I would just start writing and merging my own strategies around this. So the Socratic method of getting a yes says get someone to say yes to three minor questions and they'll always say yes to the major question. It worked when I was talking to women. It worked when I was you know, trying to sell stuff over the door to door. It worked, of course, when I was on the phones. And so I would just go through and say, when someone said it costs too much, you know, instead of panicking, I would kind of take feel felt found is I understand how you feel. I was just talking to a guy the other day. He felt the same way you did. But what he found is that no matter how long you think about buying a product like this, you know, that really the only thing that's going to make the decision for you is by getting it and using it, and of course, you have a 30-day guarantee. And for a lot of people, that makes a lot more sense. Do you see what I mean? And they go, yes, great. What credit card do you want to use? But I would take that, and I would even go deeper. And I'd go, I'd go, that makes sense, right? And let me ask you a question. If you, I mean, sometimes it's better to pay a little bit more than you expected to get a lot less than you need. Wouldn't you agree? We've all done that at some point, right? And that's a second yes. And then I'd say, and you're a very intelligent person, right? So if this product didn't work for you, you're going to call and you're going to return it and get your money back, right? Yeah, because I'm like you. I don't want to spend my hard-earned money on something that doesn't work for me. Make sense? Sure. And so with that in mind, why don't we go ahead you know, and uh, get this out to you so you can give it a shot. And for years, it doesn't work. You just call and get a full refund. And quite frankly, we wouldn't be in business if everybody was calling us and asking for their money back. And that makes sense too, right? And I would just go this Socratic method of getting a yes. And I would, I would get 10 yeses. <laughs> you know, just to prove my prowess, you know. 
that I would disclose everybody I talked to. I mean, I, I was, I was the guy that, you know, I, I, if they had a way to pay for something, they would give me the money. Um, and so I just put that into my scripts and we became, first of all, we're in Mexico, but all my agents today who speak English, uh, lived in the U S so we know how to personalize the sound of the breeding. We know how to sell. And then because we're in Mexico, about 30% cheaper than the U S but I outperform all the U S centers I compete with. And so, um, our agents are, are, you know, have learned all these processes that I kind of put into a sales training manual and, uh, and built out. So kind of funny. But yeah, level of detail in being successful is certainly something you should pay attention to. Man, that that is incredible, man. Um, and one thing that I, you know, see like you, you, I hear this a lot, especially like on Clubhouse nowadays. With um, like, cause what you what I see what you've done with your journey is first you started off with like you solved the problem first, right? So you saw that there was demand for this. And then you kept doing that amongst other call centers because you saw there was definitely demand for it. And then that's when you decided to start your business around it. Um, what do you feel like, how important it, is it that you make sure that you do like your target market research, you know, and how long would you recommend spending time on that target market research? Because I know it's a big part of selling your product as well, right? Yes and no. I mean, there's a lot of things that I tried and started and went down the path and it worked to some degree, but maybe not in the same degree that I wanted it to. Um, One of the things that I did early on when I was in the phone center is I learned that on the back end of a phone call is like a billboard, it's media space. And because I was an insurance, someone had approached me with prepaid legal, right? And it's a legal plan. Well, I wanted to add that as a 30-day free trial to the back of a phone call. And prepaid didn't want to do it, but I found another legal company that did. And they said, sure, we'll try it, you know. And so I plugged this whole plan together. They were running fulfillment, customer service, and everything. I just had to sell it as a trial and make sure they understood the expectation is that, you know, 30% of the people would cancel, but the rest would probably stick and be billed. And uh, we... I started buying media space in the back end of a phone call. I would buy the media space for $3 a minute. And I made sure my scripts were about a minute long. And, and people, you know, why wouldn't they, they were paying 26 cents or whatever, 70 cents a minute for that space. Why wouldn't they make a 300% margin on their talk time? And I started reading this legal script on the back end and getting 20% of the people to say yes. And at the time, the legal program was advancing me a lot of money. And I immediately put on a few thousand members just like that by buying that space and, re- and then basically selling it to a legal company who was paying me more than $3. And I used to do all these little things like that. Now, that was a good business. However, I was ahead of my time. MasterCard and Visa during monthly billings would charge each event as a separate event. And if somebody would charge it back after six months, it was six separate chargebacks. So after that business, it was a rocky start because the legal company wasn't ready for that many ads. And, but once we kind of got up and running, it ran for about four months really well. And it started to make me a, a bunch of money. It really was making a ton of money for me. And all of a sudden, MasterCard and Visa started issuing chargebacks and penalties. And all of a sudden, I'm having $250,000 in penalties hitting this account on a month-to-month basis 
And that business was like this. It was like, whoosh, and then it went, <laughs> I just, I didn't have the experience to handle all those chargebacks and the cash flow to see it through. And, and today, MasterCard and Visa call that one chargeback. And so I wouldn't have had the same, but I was ahead of my time. I built a business called Promo Call where I was going to buy the front end of a phone call while you're on hold. And I, I had some advertisers that were testing on the front end under branding. And that, that never really took off. You know, I had a company in New York work with me a little bit and they had some sponsors. And, but I, you know, I was dreaming about the hold times that the IRS has, for example, when you're waiting on hold and buying that, that talk time for, you know, for, for pennies and then reselling it for, you know, I think the hold time is like a fraction of a penny for a call center to pay for that. So I was like, well, if I could sell it for four or five cents, again, little hinges swing big doors. I think the other expression is pigs get fat and the hogs get slaughtered. <laughs> so I'm always looking for little hinges, you know. Um, and so that was another failed thing. I think a lot of times a good idea just sometimes is too early. In its inception, all the pieces might not come together. Maybe if I would have had more stick to to it or didn't feel like there was a better thing that I was working on. Some of those things would probably be multi-million dollar businesses. And maybe, look, I'm just thinking this, like in this moment right now, maybe those are failures that didn't have to be failures, but it was because I'm so damn ADD, you know, that I'm like, that got scary to me. So I was like, well, I'm not doing that anymore <laughs> over here. And, uh, but I, I guarantee you with somebody else, a lot of those businesses would have grown because, so I don't know, man. I mean, I, I've succeeded and failed as much as anybody. And, um, and uh, yeah, so interesting stuff. Yeah. Very interesting. Like how of, over the course of that time, like how long was that period? Cause I, I find that where we're at, or at least with my audience, like we about want eight to about eight months, eight months. Okay. Eight months to a year. Yeah. Maybe longer. You know, it's hard to go back in time. Everything kind of goes like this, but yeah. Um, it was like three or four months of setup because I had to work with all these legal companies and get my rates right, get the fulfillment piece printed. I mean, there was a lot of execution that happened to get it to where it was. And then we started um, really adding on the sales and we had four to six months of really, oh my God, this is amazing. We're going to be millionaires <clears throat> to uh, wait a minute. We're getting chargebacks and fines to a friend of mine helping who was helping me run it um, and was, was working with me on it saying there's no more money this thing's going away and uh, it is what it is you know so yeah maybe so maybe it was like a year and a month or something like that if I really replay the timeline in my head more mm-hmm. and I'm curious like because music is a big part of of your marketing and what you do where does music come in in all of this Music's been a calling for me all my life, you know, a passion to be creative. And the marketing I was good at, right? Really good at marketing, really good at sales. And so that was something that I had to do to make money for my family. But in the back of my head, I always was going to be a musician. You know what I mean? It just, um, when you have, you guys, a lot of, maybe a lot of people here are young, but I met my first wife in the training class for the insurance company when I was 21 or 22 years old and it was during the training class that we had lots of sex and somehow god knows how she got pregnant and you know 
all of a sudden I had a kid on the way. And so I married her about eight months after my first child was born. I didn't want the child to be the reason that we got married. And we had more kids. Um, we had one, the, the next one we planned. And then the next one, she was on birth control, but she had taken some cough medicine or something for a cold and boom, pregnant. And this, I think the fourth one, we were swimming in the same swimming pool and she got pregnant. I don't know. She, <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? You know? And, and you have to support your family. You know, you, your dreams are still there, but they become secondary, I think, to having to pay the bills. And look, I, I was living in a place that I couldn't afford. So I had to, with, with my first two children, I had to move into my mother-in-law's basement. I was hitchhiking to my call center job. I'd go out on the highway and hitchhike to work because I didn't have a working car. And so as a result, I found myself getting to work when I got there. And then I would stay and work. Literally, I would work from seven in the morning till till three or four in the morning because I, it was hard for me to get the rides back and forth sometimes. And so I had saved enough money to get a cheap old car that would get me back and forth. And, you know, so I had to do what I had to do to pay the bills to make sure the kids, you know, were okay. And, uh, and, and I kind of grew from there. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, Interesting, interesting life uh, as, as it goes by. So you guys are all young. You don't have, maybe some of you have kids or some of you don't, but, but when you're young, you have all these opportunities in the world to be free and to really go after your dream without too much risk. But for me, if I didn't bring home a paycheck, so I couldn't die full-time in music because if I didn't bring home a paycheck, my kids weren't going to eat. You know, I mean, we already were getting food stamps and government assistance and things like that, you know, and, uh, and so I was like, I gotta make money. And so I had to put the music on the back burner for a little bit. Wow. So then you got back on your feet, and and that's when you because I I've watched your YouTube videos. I love Dad Bod, and, um, <laughs> you know your intro video, and um, I think it was like a hundred ways to love, like be a better lover. I love these. I love these. Does does that play in like um? How did you start gaining traction? Does that well, play part of your like marketing now? It's maybe not the best story in the world, but I was shocked when my first wife said she wanted a divorce. We were out Christmas shopping and we stopped to have dinner and I just looked up at her and, you know, it was like December 6th and we had a, you know, we we're doing all of our Christmas shopping for the kids. And I looked up and she's just looking at me and she's just crying. And I'm like, we're at, we're Christmas shopping. What could be sad about Christmas shopping? And she goes, I'm unhappy. I want a divorce. And it just rocked me to the core and I tried to go to counseling. She didn't want to go to counseling. She was done. And I didn't know what I did wrong outside of trying to support the family. I just, I had no idea. And it was even close to coming, you know, and uh, it just hit me right out of the blue. And I went to counseling on my own. And one of the things that I did was, you know, one of the things she said was like, I would sometimes have, a, my dad was a yeller. So I think sometimes I would yell at the kids. It's been so long now that I haven't been that person, but I'm sure I would come home stressed out and I'd yell at the kids or whatever. I was never abusive except for maybe verbally abusive, right? And which is horrible. So I decided to go to some anger management counseling because I really desperately wanted to try to save my marriage. And when I went, she goes, well, the best thing you can do is to find something you love and sink yourself into it. And somehow I, for me, a friend of mine had created some production tracks 
and we were just playing him in a car. He was doing some work for me, and we were playing him in the car, and I just started writing to those records. And by the time the trip was over, I think I had kind of put together the framework for about 30 records, you know? And, uh, and I said, well, this is what she meant. Find something you love and sink yourself into it. And so I just got right back into writing music and created all that emotion, you know, just was pouring out in the, in the, in the songs. And, uh, and that's kind of how I got back into it. It made it, it was a lesson, right? The, the things that you love, um, you don't have to be doing it full time or professionally, but if you love something, you should have it in your life in some way or some form, right? Even if it's 30 minutes a day, or even if it's like you want to be an actor, act in the local theater, you know, I mean, if you love something, try to keep it in your life in some way or form because it makes you happy. You know, your passion is your happy place. And so if you want to be happy, keep your passion in your life. You don't have to make money at it. You don't have to be great at it. You could suck. But if it's your passion, do it, you know, um, and, and do it as often as you can. So that was a valuable lesson for me. And it kind of, it pushed me into this track of adventure. It was after my divorce that I went to Necker and it was, it was I jumped out of an airplane from 32,000 feet and snowmobiled on a live volcano in Iceland and started diving and, and dove in some, some of the craziest dive spots in the world. And, you know, it was at that point, but I really let my, um, inner child kind of come out and and started that life of adventure and and following my passions man that's that's so incredible and with your with your business do you do you bring that silliness and that fun and and adventure into your business as well of course i mean uh, you know that we built a culture at listen trust um our original core value was delivering awesomeness and it was supported by the values i actually worked with tony shea on some of the stuff that we did he was he was awesome as a mentor and someone to talk to about some of the things we were doing in our call center. Um, and then of course I built out the dream trust program where I started training all my employees to quit, <laughs> which is, which was people like, what you're doing, what people don't necessarily want to quit. They want a job that values them, that helps them find their passion again, that helps them bring up their new child. And that's all we did. And, and some people quit, but most of the people, our, our turnover went down, you know? So, um, so, so it's been an interesting journey, you know? Yeah, that's incredible, man. I mean, it's all about um, giving tremendous amount of value to the people that are around you and making sure that you take care of the people and make sure they feel cared for. And that's one thing that you talk a lot about in terms of like connecting with people. I think you said something like, it's okay to give value to somebody. And even if you don't get anything back from that relationship 20 years down the line, it's still worth it to come from this place of always giving. And that applies to not only your friends, but your coworkers or the yeah. people that you as well, right? Well, if you, if you knew one out of 20 people that you talked to today is going to be a millionaire, how would you treat them? Because guess what? That's kind of the reality. I mean, you know, I mean, maybe not a millionaire, but they're going to be in a position someplace and sometime in their life. One out of 20 people that you already know are going to be in a position to help you down the line somewhere. Who's that person? Well, you don't know. And so you treat everybody. It's such an opportunity to be young. And that's part of where my Rolodex and my phone book is so valuable. This guy, Vishen Lakhiani from Mind Valley, you know, is today running one of the biggest companies on the planet and making some of the biggest changes in the world with his company. And I remember he was just this young, geeky kid. You know, he did have a wife at the time, no kids or anything. Um, 
he was just kind of a, an oddball, you know, talking about all these crazy things he was going to do. And his business might have been doing, you know, 10 million in revenue or whatever, selling 10 million in products. And, you know, but he wasn't like you thought he was going to go anywhere, but I was his friend and I kind of got to know a little bit about him. And I tried to give him some advice, tried to help him. And he thought I was a big deal at the time. And he invited me to his company in Malaysia to speak at one of his retreats. And I went out there with, Jim Quick. I was out there with Michael Drew. I was out there with, you know, some pretty, some pre- pretty prominent people that he invited out to speak at his event. And I was like, yeah, I'll go out and speak at your event. And I ended up traveling with the Maverick Group to like eight continents with him. And then all of a sudden, he built Awesomeness Fest, and then he started building out Mind Valley Russia and Mind Valley this country and Mind Valley that country, and and, and his business grew and grew and grew and. You know, and, and I think just before the pandemic, I was invited to a party in Hollywood with him and he had NFL football players, Hollywood actors. They had all read his New York Times bestselling book and they reached out to him because his book was so good, you know, and all of a sudden he's out there in Hollywood with all these A-list players. And he's like, Craig, you got to come to my party. And it was because it was his friend before he was anybody. And, and I guess I've got a lot of people in my phone that have that similar story. And you do too. You've already got them in your phone, Greg, right now. You don't know who it is, but guess what? They're there. 15 years from now, you're going to be blessed because you have that relationship. And you can also you can help them, continue to help them, because you're somebody who supported them way before they became anybody. So they know that you're not their friend because they're successful. So you mean something to somebody because of that long relationship you've had with them. You mean something different but all the people that want them because they're now somebody make sense. Oh yeah. Uh, right there with you, man. Like um, I, I feel that your network really does provide like my, one of my mentors says that, you know, stop chasing money, chase opportunity. <clears throat> and I feel that relationships are like one of the best things you can possibly invest in, you know, besides yourself. One of my favorite expressions and, and, have a billionaire mindset. There's a millionaire mindset. The millionaire mindset thinks about how relationships can help them make money. But the billionaire mindset is one that looks, that basically pictures the world as more of a video game and focuses on the spiritual energy of helping and healing others, right? And that energy comes back to you in the form of money in a lot of cases, and it creates much more wealth than you could ever make if you're focused on money. You know, and so that's the mindset I try to take into every day is how am I going to help somebody become more in whatever way they need to become more, right? And and then I know that that energy will come back around and it will make my life more complete, whatever, based on whatever I need, you know? So um, it's just that spiritual belief that differs from a, a money mentality. Yeah, that's a, that's a, and that's a difficult switch to make, especially if you don't have like all the like money in your business. Cause you're thinking I need to make some money to be, to stay afloat. But do you feel like adopting that before it, like, even if you don't have all the money in your business, like that is going to help. It comes with, it comes with also being your true self. So if you're helping somebody when you're true with somebody and say, look, just so you know, you know, I'm trying to help, but just so you know, I'm still struggling as a young entrepreneur. And if there's any way that, that you could help me along the way, I'd really appreciate it. And it's just having the courage to be humble enough to ask for help too, right? 
you know, a lot of people who are trying to come up in the world as young entrepreneurs, they don't want to admit. Look, I, I didn't want to admit it. I remember being in Vegas at a table and this one kid was at the table and he was such a, it, I felt like I was being bullied all over again. He was such a dick. Like I didn't belong in the circle and we're at dinner and he's like this, he grabs his glass and he's like, yeah, he's like, ding, 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 ding. And everybody sit quiet. And he goes, guys, just so you know, Craig here's offered to buy dinner for everybody. Just want to thank Craig. And I'm like, and I had ordered a glass of water. Like that was my order. I was just happy to be at the table trying to network. And I was so fucking broke, you know? And I was like, uh, um, and I, I think at the time, probably a lot of people thought he was kidding, but I was horrified because I had a credit card that had $50 left on it. And that's all I had to my name. Right. And I'm like, and I just, I literally, I just, I just got up and left. Right. I didn't know what else to do. I said, that's not true. I got up and left and I went to my room and I didn't go to any other dinners. I just went to the event and back to my room because I was afraid I'd get called out again. I wasn't true to who I was at that time. You know, I was still learning to be comfortable in my own skin. Um, I'm still learning to be comfortable, you know, um, and the more that you're true to yourself, the more life vibrates evenly around you. Um, I was in, I was married and I was in another relationship for quite a while and I would talk to people about it and it was really causing, you know, problems with my energy, you know? And as soon as I finally told my, my wife, I wanted to end the relationship, I, I ended up having like four or five months where I just turned into a tank, just business wise and energy wise, and just everything started falling into place. And I was like, why didn't I do this sooner? And there are reasons that I didn't do it sooner. There are reasons why I wasn't being as true and honest as I wanted to be. Um, it's a scary place to be. And, you know, we had a we had a young child together and I wanted that young child to stick around. So I was being a little bit selfish in the relationship. Um, but as soon as I was honest about it, my vibration shifted completely. And, you know, and 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 that's what happens in life. The more honest you are, the more life gives you back. And Look, and I'm not saying it's easy, right? It's never easy to admit that you're human, right? <laughs> we all want to be looked at as something, you know, somebody bigger, you know? And uh, at least for me, being bullied as a kid, for me, it's horrifying. What if people don't like me, right? Your brain has three functions. Fight it, right? Um, you, want, you want to fear it, fight it, or fuck it. And Dave Asprey talks about that a lot. Your brain has three simple functions. And so for me, someone not liking me, my brain thinks I'm going to die. And because, and especially since I was bullied as a kid. So it was very difficult for me to have that honest conversation. Um, but it really makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. You know, and that's a, you touched on like asking for help. That's such a struggle because it personally, like some, like it was some of my instance, right? Like where I'm struggling with my own business and say, I look at somebody who's much more successful it can be scary to ask for help, like, hey, Craig, or hey, so-and-so, like, I'm struggling, I need some help, because we feel like you're, you guys are so busy. And like, we may not, like, we don't want to come from this taking mentality. So it's always like, hey, how can we give? How can we just nurture and, and give uh, to these relationships? Like, how would you, um, like, that's, that's, that's really tough, because like, because you definitely want to have a long-term relationship, but you definitely don't want to be like a taker from the relationship. The more, the more successful somebody is, the more likely it is that, A, they have free time, 
right? Because they've somebody who's successful has most likely outsourced a lot of their execution. So they have more free time. You can almost tell where someone's been in their life by the way that they talk to you and the way they consider who you are and consider your time to be as important as theirs. When I sit with Richard Branson, he considers my opinions, my conversation to be more as important as his. He treated me like I was his damn child. You know what I mean? The guy is just as humble as can be. Paul DeGiorio, amazing human being. You know, you go to his house and the guy has all these tequilas you've never heard of before. And he's, he talks about the tequila with passion and he loves his motorcycles. And he talks about how he was homeless and lived in his car and he couldn't eat. So he gives free lunches to all his employees. And you, you can hear, he just oozes generosity and kindness. Uh, Roland Fraser, same way. You know, he's somebody more local that you could talk to. Um, you know, John Ratliff, another one who's part of Genius Network, Joe Polish. I mean, these guys ooze generosity and they always try to make time for people because they're successful. Somebody who's not making, I, I was a kid who, when I first made my first 150000 I bought $300 shoes and bought a, a $6,000 Rolex and you know, and, I'm, and I was, I, I had upgraded to Tommy Bahama shirts, $100 shirts, you know, and, and, and I just, I'm like, oh, and, and I walked around and didn't want to share anything because I'm like, you know, I'm a big deal now. Well, guess what? People who act like that are probably making 150000 a year. They're not a big deal, right? I mean, the people that are doing really well are the ones who are going to have time for you and are going to treat you with the respect that you deserve, right? You deserve respect, Greg. I respect you. And I care about everything that you want to do. And, and I'm always happy to step up and help. And I think Roland's the same way. If you send him an email, he'll find time for you. You know, those people that are worth spending time with are the ones that are going to give you their time. So if someone doesn't give you their time, that's not on you, man. That's on them. They're not successful enough to understand your value yet. Wow. That was um, absolutely incredible. Uh, thank you so much, Craig, that... Um... That really means a lot. That that's actually, that was very powerful right there. Um, had some amazing breakthroughs. Um, one thing I want to talk about as well is like, what does your process look like for? Because because well, now that you've, I'm sure you outsource a lot. Um, how much time a day do you spend on nurturing your relationships that you have? That's really all I spend my time on. I don't do much with operations. I've got great people around me, um, and I try to schedule. I have basically on my calendar up to three calls a day is the most because I like to leave some free time in to catch up on my relationships, to call an old friend or whatever. I, I try to go through and keep in touch with people, you know, and just reach out. And, and I have no agenda other than to catch up. And it also leaves me open where if I want to spend time being creative or working on something that's not on my calendar, then, then I have that time. But I try to keep for. So the most part, like today, I have two calls. I have this and I have one more, you know, later on today. And, and But I'll have, I'll end up on the phone a lot of the day, but it won't be with an agenda. It'll be just reaching out, checking on people and make sure I'm nurturing my relationships that I already have. And a lot of times that leads to creating new relationships. And if you, if you don't have time, how can you nurture a new relationship? You know, so I, I try to leave myself pretty open to, uh, to help others and to receive whatever, whatever the world's bringing my way, man. Awesome. Yeah. I heard uh, JT Fox on a clubhouse recently say that he spends 70% of his day on relationships as well. 
Um, I also want to know, speaking of relationships, you mentioned in your book about when you have a business partner, you're likely spend more time with them than you will with your spouse. And like, I'm curious in terms of what, cause like when you have a business partnership, you're gonna have your ups and downs. It's going to be tough. But like, um, what do you feel like really makes as a core of like a unbreakable business partnership? Values, having the same core values. My business partner and I in the call center definitely are different people, right? But we always had the same values. And we went through a period in our relationship where we weren't getting along for about a year. And we were able to work through it, which is more than I can say for my marriages. Um, <laughs> and we're friends and uh, we don't spend a lot of time together now because we're both kind of doing different things. But when we do get together, um, for example, we were just talking about a bonus plan and somebody who's, you know, who's working hard in our company asked for a bonus of X. <laughs> and he says, well, how do you feel about that? And I said, I think it's this. And he goes, yeah, me too. And we both said, we're going to come up with a plan and discuss it. And we both came up with the same kind of plan. And what I find is that, that because we have the same values, even though our way to get from A to Z, his is this way and mine's this way, both of those paths have value in the path. And, uh, and we both ended up at the same place. So your best business partners are somebody who holds your opposite characteristics, but has the same values. Boom. That's, that's really powerful. Yeah. So when you do your three-year vision, they should write their vision. You should write yours. And if you layer them on top of each other, they should have many of the same outcomes. Yeah. Plain and simple right there. Beautiful. So as we, as we approach the end here, um, we had, uh, we had a couple people from the community had some questions as well. So, um, I had one of my good, good friends, his name is Omar. He, he is really big on Jordan Peterson and sacrifice. He really wants to know, like, what did you have to sacrifice, uh, to get you to where you're at today? Um, look, I love working. I do not feel like I've had to sacrifice a lot to get where I'm at. But my values growing up were my kids. And uh, excuse me, I got a little tickle in my throat. I'm going to mute for a second. Cough. Oh, yeah, I got to unmute you one second. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um. So I, I was offered a record contract in 2004, 2000, 2010. And it was a quarter of a million dollar advance. It was a tour schedule. You know, it was with Universal Motown. And my kids were 12, 10, 8, and 6. And I had just come out of a, my first divorce. And uh, they said, here's your record contract. And I looked at it and said, hmm. And I just thought, how are my kids going to survive without me? And so I didn't do it. So, look, I sacrificed a record contract for my children. But is that a sacrifice, really? I think you can view sacrifices as just a different path, right? I mean, I could have spent more time at home, but I chose to travel. That's led to opportunities that I can pass along to my kids. Um, it's led to opportunities for me in my life to do things that I never thought I'd have a chance to do. I mean, it's I wanted to meet. I, it's funny. I wrote down all these things I wanted to do, and everything I've written down, I've kind of done. And so I keep adding. 
And when you write it down, it has a different effect on the, I, I almost think maybe there's aliens looking at it and it's like a video game again. And if you write it down, you just jot it down and you go, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like I said, I wanted to meet all the living Beatles. What are the chances, right? And then I got invited to Ringo Starr's birthday party with a hundred people. And I got introduced to Ringo by David Lynch. And I literally was sitting next to Jim Carrey singing a little help for my friends from the front row with Ringo. And I mean, what a fucking amazing experience, right? That was to sing with Ringo, you know, crazy. And then I got invited to Paul McCartney's music cares event. I invited Richard Branson as my guest and Branson at first accepted, but then he said, Oh, I've been invited as a guest. Why don't you come up to my table and say hello to me? And so when I went up to, um, Richard Branson's table to talk to Richard, he was sitting next to Yoko Ono, his wife and Yoko Ono. I never said I want to meet Yoko Ono, but I said I want to meet the living members of the Beatles. Oh, and at Ringo's party, George Harrison's wife was there, who I met. Um, and then at a David Lynch event, Paul McCartney's son was at the event. And it just I wrote this down, but I never thought I was going to meet Paul. Oh, and then when I was talking to Richard, Paul put his arm around me and said, do you mind if I talk to my old friend? <clears throat> and I said, who do you think you are, Paul McCartney? All you fucking British folk think you've been knighted by the fucking queen. And he got a good laugh out of it. <clears throat> and uh, it was pretty funny. Um, he'll never forget me for that. Paul will never forget me with that statement. Now, the, the horrible part of this is he was like about to talk to me and security's like, sir, can we help you to your seat? Right? And I'm like, no, no, I'm good. Right? I'm good right here. Don't interrupt me. I'm talking to Paul and Richard Branson. Can I get away? Get away. <laughs> it was like your, your, your ex-girlfriend shows up to meet your wife, right? You're like, no. And security's like, yeah, let me get your seat. And they, were, they were like acting like I was going to be sitting next to Richard. They were really polite. Of course, my seat was in the back row. So um, it was a short-lived meeting, but because I wrote it down, look at all the people I met in that scenario. I said I wanted to meet the Dalai Lama, and I met the Dalai Lama up in Calgary, and he blessed the scarf that I was holding. And, you know, I mean, what are the chances that these things are going to happen? Um, just so many crazy things that have happened to a kid who was living in his mother-in-law's basement. You know, uh, one thing we didn't talk about that I'm really a big fan of. If anybody wants help, I'm a real big life hacker. I believe, so how many people are writing music today, right? I think there's, somebody told me, like a, a natural producer was saying there's like 5,000 songs written every day. And, um, and I was like, how do you compete with that shit? And for me, I looked at music as a business. And when I bring a product to a infomercial company, they give you 5% of revenue. And they keep 95% of revenue. But believe it or not, 5% of revenue on a product is typically around 40 to 50% of the profit because they put all the revenue into developing the product, getting it in from China, getting it into retail, buying the media. <clears throat> so a lot of people don't understand that 5% of revenue is a good deal with an infomercial company. In the music business, a company will take 50% of your production and your royalties and your streams to introduce you to movie directors who may put your song in the movie. All they're really doing is making an introduction. Where's the value in that? And 
there's a story uh, Robert Davi told me. Robert Davi was in Goonies and he was in James Bond as a villain and brought over 50 films. I mean, you'd know him if you saw him. He was the FBI detective in um, Die Hard. You know, looks like we're going to need some more FBI agents. <laughs> um, so um, I was talking to him and he was telling me he's an amazing musician. He used to sing with Frank Sinatra. A lot of people don't know that. And he said he was talking with Johnny Carson and Johnny was talking about how even though Robert does all this stuff with music, how much more of a successful musician he is. And Robert says, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I have that one record. And uh, it turns out that when the Tonight Show theme song was being created, uh, Johnny Carson had thousands and thousands of people submitting, you know, for that, for that TV show until he came across one by Paul Anka and Johnny Carson. Now, Johnny had never written a note in that whole thing. But when he saw it, of course, he's like, well, yeah. So Johnny became an owner of the Tonight Show theme song, which became the theme song of the Tonight Show, and he made a lot of money from it. So what Paul Anka did was he basically hacked the system. Out of thousands and thousands of songs, Johnny Carson became a writer on the record, and he owned 70% of something rather than 100% of nothing. And in my world, I do a lot of the same types of things. In other words... I went out and I found 10 dancers on TikTok or OnlyFans and they all have millions of followers. And I said, I'm going to give you each 2% of my royalty stream of this record. And I want you to create the reels, the TikToks, the, the trillers. Why wouldn't I give, you know, 20% of my record to people who can actually help sell it? What's a record label going to do? They're going to help sell it. But they're going to do strategies that may or may not work. I'm working with people who actually have fans and I'm putting them into a music video, putting them into my record. How is that different from something else? Well, I got the same strategy. I went on LinkedIn and I went and started sending messages to directors. And I said, hey, um, I want to know if I could submit a record for sync for you for your next movie. And by the way, just so you know, this record is actually one that you wrote on. So I'm sure that makes a lot more sense to put your own music into your movie than it is to, you know, put somebody else's. And I would literally get people writing back like, what the hell are you talking about? And I would open a conversation and I'd say, look, here's my strategy. You know, it's, it's a hacking strategy. And I know you didn't write a note in it, but why don't you look at some of the lyrics? And I said, you're a director, you're a writer. Why don't you change up a few of the lyrics and work with me to make sure we get the ideal song. I'll make sure I get all the, I'll get all the production stuff and things like that. And, uh, and you'll have your own record in, in, the, in the thing. I don't want to compete with thousands of records. I want you looking at my record. And so I do that in almost everything in life is I find ways to be unique, to hack the system. And I don't compete with all the fucking fish in the pond. I'm the shark. You know, I'm the whale in the ocean. And if you guys want to keep competing with the minnows, hey, good for you. But I can tell you that no matter what your business is, there is a way for you to be the shark. And one of my special superhero powers is listening to you and telling you here's the way for you to be the shark in the pool of minnows. I had a lawyer working on the phones for me, taking phone calls. I created a podcast with him, or at least I helped him create his own podcast. We interviewed about 70 lawyers in Hermosillo, and I had him ask the question to every lawyer, where's the hole in the legal community here in Hermosillo? And the lawyers would answer. So in six months, he hung out a shingle specializing in the hole, and he had 70 relationships that would refer business to him as he opened his doors. He created a successful law practice in the six months. Now, he went out for about a year trying to find a job as a lawyer. And now he owns his own practice after six months of me talking with him and teaching him how to hack the system. Everything in life has a hack. Find it.
man, that's I want to make sure I shared that lesson with your with your followers. Yeah, uh, thank you. Because um, you know, in uh, Alex Bonian talks about that in his book, The Third Door. You know, there's there's always a, a third, there's a front door, there's the back way, but there's always another entrance in, and it's through like going through the window, and it is is, and it seems like you know that way in terms of not the traditional, but you can strategize to figure something out. Yeah. So now I'll let you get back to your question. Sorry. Oh, no problem. Yeah. I was going to say, um, is there like, so I just want to thank you for your time here. Is there, is there anything else that you would like to share or anything that you want to just uh, leave us with um, that you want to maybe reiterate? Maybe you have something she haven't shared yet. I mean, of course. No, I mean, I just wanted to get on and answer questions. If anybody has any questions, um, happy to answer them. I know we're running a little bit over right now, but uh yeah, I, yeah. I, mean, I, have, see, I just wanted to look at some of the comments. How much do I charge for consultation? But no, I don't charge. I just, I have services that sometimes can help people uh, hit their goals. And sometimes people hire me and sometimes they don't. But my philosophy is to help people. I did go out and take the Genius Network approach of charging like $10,000 a day. And look, at it, I'm worth $10,000 a day, no problem at all. But the reality is, is a lot of people don't have my skill set. And they don't know how to execute on my ideas. And so I go out and I talk to them and then I can, A, refer them to people who can, B, maybe they want to look for it on their own and do it on their own. And I'm happy to support them in that way. Sometimes they hire my company to provide services for them. And then I don't feel like they're spending 10 grand that's going to basically be flushed down the toilet. Um, I once had a guy who told me um, that he was going to teach me how to speak Spanish in three days and he charged me 10 grand a day. And he came to my office for three days and he put uh, Michael T Michelle Thomas, how to speak Spanish. Apparently, he worked with Michelle Thomas to create the program. So he felt like he could teach anybody how to speak Spanish in three days by basically putting the tape in a tape recorder and hitting play while Michelle Thomas did, you know, taught how to speak Spanish. Well, the funny thing was I had already downloaded that on my computer. So he goes, oh, computer would be much easier. Can I borrow your computer? And he literally spent three days hitting the space bar for 22 grand. And I have never felt more screwed over than I did in that moment. And uh, I mean, I would have hired a teacher to come in and do it. Who would have given me more value? You know, a school teacher who, who I could have gave her two grand. And she could have hit the space bar. Um, so I, I don't want to be that guy that people feel like I didn't get any value from Craig. I'd rather give the value. And if, if I could help you with one of my businesses, great hire my business so that way you know i know that you're going to actually receive value or take what i'm doing and build it yourself um and, and make it more successful than what i'm doing and learn how to do it you know so that's it beautiful let's see uh, gabriel says awesome session thanks for your time i get the impression you think outside the box a lot with whatever you do but is there a way that you got to that point because i feel like it can be a learned skill like anything else Probably is a learned skill, comes with experience. Um, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of things outside of the box for a long time. It takes creativity. And I think the thing is, maybe your mindset is that of an executioner. There's nothing wrong with that. There are people like me who are super creative who will spend 30 minutes with you and give you a list to execute on and go out and do what your superpower is. If your superpower isn't being creative, work with people who are and, and then work on the things that you're passionate about and the, and the things that you're really good at. And so if you're not good at that today, don't stress. There are people like me that will spend 10 minutes with you and, and give you five months worth of work to help you get to that next level. 
Um, you just have to find those creatives around you. And eventually you probably want to hire one, you know, hire somebody who is super creative. So it doesn't have to be you. If that's not something you're good at, don't feel like it's a bad thing. You're probably aces above me in execution or other things. Who not how? Yeah. Yeah. I actually helped them launch that book. Uh, Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan, I ran it through my book launch process and helped them sell 8,000 books or so. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic book. Uh, Yeah, Megan asks, uh, what is the most vulnerable business conversation you've had to have? I love your approach, fully resonates. Uh, honoring you in that. Thank you. Um, I had a client, I've had a couple of really tough experiences. I had, we had a flower company hire us to take their phone calls at one point. And when we did the contract, they were supposed to be paying for agent hours. And what that means is when someone checks in for, you know, swipes their card to be in the building, we only make them pay when someone's on working hours. So we don't make them pay for their breaks. We don't make them pay for their lunches. And there's a lot of ways when you look at a phone contract for a phone company to screw you over. We always try to be transparent, really ethical. And so we said, you only have to pay, you know, when people are, are logged on your team, you know, when they're in the building for you. Well, what they tried to do is they said, well, no, we're only, what happens is, is they agreed to that in the contract. It was very well defined. And then they hired in December, 300 people for December into January was the big training month. And then you have all those people that you need for Valentine's day and mother's day. Right. Well, what they were doing is they hire those people, but they didn't want to pay for 300 people. They wanted to train them. So they would put each agent on the phone for like two hours a day to get real live calls and they'd shuffle them around. And we sent them a bill. Our, just our payroll alone was $205,000 or whatever. And we sent them a bill for the three hundred and seventy-five thousand order that they're supposed to be paying for technology. That's by wholesale cost, right? And so we obviously were trying to mark up our hours a little bit, things like that. But at the end of the day, they said, "No, we're only paying for logon time." They only wanted to pay for the agents they were logged onto the phones. They wanted them in the building for forty hours a week. Of course, I don't know how you would feel as an employee who was, you know, was in the building for forty hours a week, but you only got paid for eight hours. You probably wouldn't be happy with that. But that's how they were trying to beat the system. And apparently, what I found out later is they went from call center to call center to call center every year and pulled the same stunt. You know, they did the same thing every year. They were in Honduras. They were in the Philippines. They were in Venezuela. Every year, they're trying to screw over a call center in order to make their annual profits. And they clean up because they just don't pay their bill and they say, sue us. And so what I had to do was have an honest conversation, really look in the mirror because if they would have just pulled all their calls in Mexico, you have to pay up to three months, I think for firing employees, I would have to fire 300 people and it would have cost me another three or $400,000. And so what I did was I had an honest meeting with them and I said, look, obviously this doesn't work for us. Let's come to a number that we can agree on. These are our hard costs. We at least cover our costs. And what I will do in return is I'm going to let you have all these employees that you already trained. I found you a facility. I went out and found them another facility where they could basically open a competitive center in Hermosillo, same town. And I actually helped them. I gave them all my management in order to help them set up their own business in Hermosillo. And as a result, the employees would sign releases and they all went over and worked for them. I kept the top 50 employees myself. I said, okay, you 50, I'd love for you not to sign. I'd love for you to stay. And, uh, 
it was really humbling and hard. You, I wanted to have them all killed. And it's Mexico, so I probably could have. But I had to look at the business first and be very humble and have an honest conversation with my team. Look, we're going to help them leave. Otherwise, we're going to have to pay 40000 more. And so that was a good, honest experience, an honest conversation that was really hard to handle because emotionally, you're like, oh, you just, you want to, you know, you really are angry, right? I mean, it was horrible. But on the flip side, good business isn't always uh, aligned with your emotions. And so that was a hard conversation and a hard way to, I don't know how I survived that. You know what I mean? It was, it could have been, it could have been a million dollars worse, you know? And I've had situations like that happen time and time again, where you've got to take your emotion. One of my favorite things is the 24-hour rule. I never make decisions that are emotional. I always give myself 24 hours. And if I am emotional, whatever thing I said or did, I'm like, whatever I say or do when I'm emotional, give me 24 hours to correct it. You know, if I ever say something that's just give me 24 hours so I can make sure. And I've really worked hard to give myself 24 hours to make the right decision as opposed to the emotional decision in relationships, in business, anything. So that's beautiful. Uh, we have Greg here that says, it seems like you don't take life too seriously. Can you speak to that? Why would you take life too seriously if we're all living in a simulation, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm certainly someone who has a lot of faith in the world, you know, and believe that there's something up there, God, aliens or whatever. But I mean, the less seriously you take life, the more successful you're going to be. Just what is it you want to do? Write it down and do it. And, and then find people who, A, can be creative enough to help you get there. It's not you. B, find people who are good enough at execution to help you create it. So you could be just nobody. And, you know, you can find somebody who's creative to help you on your dream and somebody who's creative, who's execution to help you execute. And you could just be the guy with the idea. You know what I mean? And you just surround yourself with those things. Why do you have to be serious about it? You know what I mean? Wow, man, that was, that was incredible. I love that. Well, again, Craig, thank you so much for your time. And um, for those of you, like um, that story that he told right before this question, you can actually, he talk, talks about that in his book, Hired to Quit. Highly recommend, fantastic book. There's a lot of stuff that he didn't cover on the interview that he covers in this book. Highly recommend it. Again, Craig, uh, dude, your time means so much. Uh, where can people find you, man? I'm at Craig Handley every, everywhere, you know, uh, Instagram, Clubhouse, you know, pretty much, pretty much everywhere. Beautiful. All right. Thank you, Craig. All right, everybody. Take care.